Welcome to the From Little Things podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Kenizaro, and together on this show, we'll speak with Aussie small business owners, founders, and entrepreneurs to share their stories and learn from those who have been on the journey from little things and beyond, so we can make it easier for you to succeed in business and life. From Little Things is brought to you by Papiera, the all-in-one solution that makes business easy for Aussie sole traders, company directors, and small business owners. You can learn more and get started for free at papera.com. Welcome to episode four of the From Little Things podcast. We've got Caleb Gibbons, the founder and CEO of Cash, on the show today. Caleb, how are you going? Yeah, pretty good. Thanks, Dan. How's the run up into Christmas? Uh, it's pretty full on. <laughs> um, I think you know we're in the, the financial services industry, so over Christmas everything kind of stops. Lawyers, accountants, banks, brokers, everyone goes on holidays, which means if it's not done by Christmas, it kind of doesn't happen until the 20th of January. And what that means is we got a lot to do before before Christmas, um, and then hopefully we'll get a bit of a break. Well, thanks so much for making the time today. Um, as I mentioned offline, uh, the From Little Things podcast is all about sharing the journey of business owners that have been through uh, the iterations of wanting to start a business, starting a business, and coming out the other side uh, with stories of success or failure along the way. Um, I'd love to start off with a brief introduction from yourself on who you are, what you do, and then we'll take it from there. Cool. All right. Well, who am I? Well, I'm, I'm Caleb. I'm a dad of two beautiful daughters and a husband of a beautiful wife. Um, and I'm also the founder of Cash. Uh, I was previously a lawyer, and then I started um, practicing in funds management law. And then um, when my first daughter was was underway, um, I thought, look, lawyering isn't that much fun. I prefer to go do something bigger and better. And so I, I quit to start uh, Cash Invest. And what we do is we launch and operate white-labeled investment products for our partners. We power digital investment products um, like investing apps and websites um, for our customers. Awesome. And I, I like to say that uh, that uh, Cash is one of the best-kept secrets of the uh, investment industry. A lot of our listeners probably use uh, fintech apps for investing that um, that they don't know actually runs on your platform. Uh, but you did also let you did remind me that you actually made fintech of uh, fintech uh, leader of the year this year. So congratulations on that, and it's a huge accolade. Yeah, thanks, Dan. I think it's it's interesting. You say we're the a secret. We are like most of our customers. Don't know they're <laughs> our customers. I kind of think we're a little bit like the um, the Intel inside your laptop, right? Like a lot of people go, oh, I buy a, a Dell or, or whatever. They don't realize they're consuming these services from other other companies, and we're a little bit the same. Um, but at the end of the day, our clients know who we are and we power all their products um, and support all their account holders. Um, and when we won the, uh, or when I picked up the FinTech Leader of the Year Award, it was actually pretty funny. In the in the, uh, in the the room, they basically just read out the name of all our clients. They were like, oh, Caleb has helped launch this product and this product and this product and this product. And so even sitting there, I was like, yeah, no one knows who we are, but they all know our clients. Um, you know, and they go, oh, that's a cool company and that's a cool company. Um, and at the end of the day, um, they're all sitting on our infrastructure, so um, we like to think that we're we're powering, you know, a large segment of the investment um, fintech community. Are there any that you'd be happy to to name that uh, just for our listeners at all? And it's okay if you can't. Yeah, yeah, sure. So I think we've got some some like classic startup um, clients, uh, like Perla, the stockbroker. Have a managed product called Perla Micro on our platform. We got Spriggy Invest, which is an investing product for parents and their kids. Um, we've got some shareback reward programs like reward or pie rewards and um, we have some ethical investment products, super obvious. Um, we've got income products like uh, Blossom, which is killing it this year. And then we've got some um, some fund managers on our staff who are distributing their product digitally for the first time. Um, and those products are more institutional and, and, and less public for us. So we have a range of, of products now, but basically if you've downloaded an app and you've invested in a managed investment um, product and it's not raised a spaceship, it's probably on our stack. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so uh, I, I, will, I would love to dive a little bit deeper into Cash in a moment, but if we just take a, I'd love to take a step back because um, for someone that's a big fintech nerd being myself, like I, I love, I'd love to dive deeper into each of these pieces, but uh, but what I, like fintech's a really complex space and so is investing. It's like one of the most complex spaces for a lot of people and a lot of people on a lifelong journey to understanding it. Um, you mentioned you're a lawyer beforehand, so it doesn't sound like you're an investor. Uh, it doesn't sound like you're a, a tech person either. Um, 
and that's not to say that you, you know but but i really love to unpack your journey so if you can take us back to the very beginning like what shaped you to become an entrepreneur what led you to founding cash oh i think there's a lot of parts to that question um oh, i should say i was a lawyer but i don't think i ever was kind of built to be a lawyer i think um my story was i did well at school and got the grades and ended up doing eng law at UNSW, and that was basically because I'm good at maths and I like arguing with people and I got the grades, so I, I did Eng Law. Um, and I got there, and then I realised I was only six in our class because nobody's stupid enough to do both engineering and law at the same time. Um, and, of course, once you get into it, you're like, well, now I have to finish. And so in, in the end, I, um, I graduated with honours in both and then um, I went on to work at Midger Ellison and ended up settling in fund services, um, financial services funds. Um, and that was a great spot for me. I always had an interest in investing. I invested through uni. I invested when I was a lawyer, um, often kind of picking my own investments. Some of them did really well. Some of them did terribly. I remember um, I got really excited about this uh, mining drilling company off Morocco, um, and I was convinced it was the next best thing. And, of course, it discovers nothing and then went broke. Um, I also invested in, um, in Chorus, the, like, New Zealand telecom. Um, because at one stage, the government there passed a law that crippled the company, and I was convinced the government would unwind the law, it was, you know, and save the company. So I invested, and they did. Um, so the thesis was correct, but I wasn't really following my portfolio, so I ended up holding it for another year um, without really having a reason to hold it. Um, and so when you look back over your portfolio and you go, I'm not close enough to it to, to manage it, you realise you end up holding assets you shouldn't be holding you know, you made decisions that no longer make sense. And um, and at that point, I kind of thought, look, I've got to stop this active trading you know, activity and start managing a portfolio, you know, more, you know, more passively. Um, and that basically put me on the journey to funds and funds management. And um, since leaving Mintas, I've now built funds management business. Um, so I guess that's, that's the journey, right? And um, just to, to go back to you know, that pre-university period, were, were you entrepreneurial at all growing up or was there anything sort of that you can look back to say, look, I should just be an entrepreneur from the start? Oh, I don't know what that means. Um, I wasn't much <laughs> as a kid. That's a great um, point. <laughs> I, I don't know. I was one of five kids and I had two working parents. And so, like, my childhood was basically being raised by my siblings or we raised each other. Um, like, we didn't have childcare. It was just kind of you get home from school and you look after each other. Um, I remember from about the age of 13 or 14, I'd pick up my, like, eight-year-old sister from school um, and bring her home, and then the folks would turn up at 6.30 for dinner or what have you. So kind of that was the background. Um, and then, of course, as soon as I left school, um, I left school at 17. As soon as I left, I went straight to uni and got, in, got into eng law and kind of away we went. Yeah. Um, but it was a pretty independent upbringing. Um, like, if you didn't do something self, no one was going to do it for you. There was no cavalry. Um, and that was just how I kind of grew up. So when you get into the workforce, suddenly it's like, I want to achieve something and I'm going to do it. Um, so I definitely had that kind of drive and personality. Um, but my first experience with entrepreneurship directly was, was when I left Minters and started my own business. So cash is my first and only, you know, startup. Yeah. Thanks, Shona. And can you walk us through kind of that? Um, so you, you've spoken about your... You know, effectively, you experience this issue where you're trying to actively manage your own investments. You realize that uh, there's risk involved, um, mm. and um, and I've been down that path as well. You know, and, and when we're younger, everyone's like, yeah, you should buy this one stock. And I think you know, uh, there's a lot of a lot of research out that suggests uh, active management for for novices, particularly, is mm. not the way to make returns. Um, but uh, you know, we won't go into advice territory here. Um, but well, you uh, got, I can. I'm a licensed. Well, well, and, I'll, I'll, and I will leave that to you. So, um, uh, but what I'm really keen to understand is so you're, you're at Minters, uh, clearly doing very well. Uh, you're a very educated guy. You know your stuff. Um, what was that catalyst that got you to sh shift though and say, hey, I'm going to quit my job as a lawyer, um, which generally pays well, and take this risk to start my own fintech? Because you didn't know this was going to work, right? Oh, no, and, and it didn't really at first. <laughs> it's that. Um, but like, as a lawyer, like lawyer, lawyering was great, top tier firm, and within mentors, we we're in a top tier practice. So we're getting really high quality work. Um, we basically listed 85% of the ETFs on the ASX. We were like the ETF 
firm for, for many years and I was in that practice group. So um, at that end of the market, great quality work, um, reliable. We would also get deals that we then, um, you know, pass on to other partner groups, um, which is always great to be in that in that group that has the direct client relationship. So it was a very good place to learn. I learned quickly and, and for me that was attractive. Um, I kind of think, you know, you need to get something out of work and, and developing your career and your abilities is high up on the list for me. Yeah. Um, but then after like four or five years, um, it got to a point where I'm like, oh, I kind of want more. Uh, you know, I see the clients making decisions. I want to I make decisions. Um, I see clients having impact on the world around them. They're launching products. They're, they're innovating. They're, you know, they're doing. And I felt like, oh, our role was just assisting. And at the end of the day, um, our service being the lawyers who review a document or, or a structure, yeah, it's a bit of a commodity service. Like if we weren't there, there'd be another one. The result would be similar, maybe better cost, maybe slightly better outcome. But at the end of the day, I was a cog that was a replaceable cog in a big machine. Um, and I felt like that's that's not where I want to be. I, I want to be um, I want to be significant in a way that means that if someone else was here, you would get a different outcome. I want to know that like the world is different because I was in it, and um, my role. In, in whatever machine I'm in is, is unique. And so if that's kind of my driver, you can pretty quickly work out that I'm going to start being like, oh, we should give the client commercial advice. They haven't thought of this. Have they thought that? Um, and very quickly the partners are like, shut up, your job is legal. Stick to review the document. <laughs> and so that was kind of, you know, the environment. Um, so you get to the point where you're like, yeah, I think I need to leave. I can't just be a private practice lawyer forever. Um, what am I going to do? And then your options are like go to London, go to New York, go to Hong Kong, um, which at the time was cool. Um, yeah. and I then, did all the, those exact three. I still ended up at the same place. <laughs> <laughs> I had friends going all three. So they were options. Or go work for a bank is always a big option. Go work for a fund. Um, that Maybe a consulting firm even, giving you what to solve problems for companies. Yeah, so, so they're the options. They're all the sensible options. And then it's like, oh, but I have all these ideas for like cool products and things. Um, and one of them, which is what I ended up doing, um, was the original version of cash, which was I, I basically came up with this theory that there are ETFs that are like diversified investment products that are suitable for most people. But yeah, can I just pause for a, can you just describe just very quickly what an ETF is? Because we just there will be a lot of listeners today that that aren't from a finance background. So exchange traded fund. Do you want to just oh yeah, sure. Well, yeah, maybe if we stop there, I'll, I'll describe I guess a product solution lens, right? So um. You know, most people have a problem, which is I want to invest my money and build wealth over time. They go, I want to build a nest egg that grows, and I want that to have a good return. And I don't want to take too much risk. And so there are there are options they might consider, but ultimately the pro- the product they're looking for is an investment product to build wealth over time in a managed risk environment. Um, but the solutions that are in the market don't necessarily match the problem. Like it's 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 not like you can just go get products and consume it directly 10 years ago the best thing you had was the asx and you'd get onto the asx and you'd see a range of products that are available probably like 2000 including companies and traded bonds and traded funds and lists and links and etfs and they all have different profiles different investment exposure uh, different risks um, an etf is probably the best of those for most first-time investors which is you can invest in a diversified pool of assets that is managed passively that provides a certain exposure. And then you can effectively use that as the core of your portfolio, depending on what the ETF is. And I should say there are there are all sorts of ETFs. I think, um, you know, you can get a growth ETF, which could form the, the core of most people's, you know, starter investment portfolio. Yeah. So that that was the, the solution to the problem. And, and my view was it's a terrible solution, right? You need to open a brokerage account. You see all these charts, there's red numbers, green numbers, people make money, people lose money. Yeah, you can only invest between 10 and 4 on a business day. You can only sell it between 10 and 4 on a business day. <laughs> to get in, you've got to put money from your bank account to your brokerage account, and then you can trade, and then it takes two days to buy. And then when you sell, it takes two days to get your money, and then you transfer your money out. So, like, the entire user experience is just, just bizarre. Um, it's a little bit dated, isn't it? It doesn't really reflect how we do life today. No, it's, it's like you've taken this product, which is how do companies raise money on a stock exchange, 
um, and how do you people trade assets? That's a stock exchange. And you're trying to use that to solve a problem, which is I want to build wealth over time. And and they're not perfect, right? Like, yes, you can use them. And if you get educated, a lot of people do. But it's not the perfect solution for that problem. And so we came up with this idea that we could build effectively a fund like an ETF and put it into an app and put it on a debit card and give it a BSP and account number and make it real-time liquid so that you could effectively use this investment product as an everyday type portfolio account. And you could build wealth in that account over time and use that as your next step. And so it was a product designed to help people build wealth over time um, and to invest for the first time and to build investment portfolios. Um, and so that's what we we did. I, I left Mintus to build that product. Um, and we did. It took us about a year and we got there. Um, and then there was the big pivot, which I think we can, we can get to. But um, but ultimately, like at the end of the day, I think most people are looking to invest their money. And there are a range of products that are coming to market to help people solve that problem um, with, with a really product and customer-focused lens. And today, you you effectively empower those solutions today. So you enable those solutions to deliver that uh, greater flexibility, greater choice, greater access, which starts to solve some of these problems around the archaic system. Yeah, that's right. So like, I think our belief, which has always been our belief, is that managed funds distributed digitally um, in a mobile or web environment is the right solution to that problem. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's a range of brands, a range of investment strategies, a range of applications which will be different for different investors. And so like we see a whole whole market of players saying we want to offer investment products to customers digitally and we are now the infrastructure that powers a whole range of those products that come to market. Um, because at the end of the day, the problem is over here, consumers, and the existing assets in the market is over there. And what connects them together in a way that can be digitally distributed and, and that's cash yeah that's really cool um so we're gonna go into cash in a moment i just want to ask one more question about your that that transition from uh being a corporate lawyer employed to entrepreneurship do you remember that moment where you're like all right i'm gonna make this happen was it a was it a sudden was it a decision where you're like i'm gonna cut being a lawyer quit give myself time to start something or was it more of a transition where kind of all of a sudden your weekends were no longer working on client work and more so working on the early cash concept? Yeah, so so in my last year at Mintas, I had a utility of 10, which meant I was working 10 billable hours a day. It was it was diabolical. Um, but my numbers were great. Um, yeah. anyway, Is that good or bad from a legal firm 10 hours a day? Because it sounds like there are a couple more hours you could have sorry there. Huge amount. It's, it's unsustainable. Um, and we can talk about... No, 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 this is not about, yeah, yeah. Um, but it was, it's a ridiculous amount of work. And I think we had a really, really busy period. And then we lost some staff, like some senior staff. And so the rest of the team got hammered. Um, and law firms often have an incentive to not spread work very far to keep it close. So yeah. just it's the people who remain. Anyway, so I was working really hard. There was no opportunity for me to do work on the side. Um, but I, my wife had, oh, we had our daughter Lizzie, right? Um, and my wife took nine months off work. And then I had three months of parental leave. Um, and the plan was I'll, I'll start a business while I'm on leave. Um, and I'm sure all of the parents in the audience are laughing because absolutely <laughs> nothing happened during that three-month period whatsoever except yeah. looking after this child and keeping them alive. And then that came to an end. And then it was like, oh, now I have to go back to work. <laughs> okay, well, now I'll put in my notice and start a business. And so that was kind of the trigger point. Yeah. Um, but I kind of knew in the lead up to that that was, that, that was the plan. Um, and, yeah. and by the way, thank you for sharing that. Was there are going to be people listening that are thinking, I, I really want to start something, but it doesn't feel like the right time, or I don't have, you know, I haven't saved enough, or I'm expecting, or I'm doing X, Y, Z. There's always something. Um, what would your advice be to those people about just getting started? We sound like you picked a time that would be by any means really stressful. And um, oh, to add, to, my know. timing was terrible. I think we just picked up a new mortgage. We just had a kid. Um, I then quit my job put some money in the startup and like away we go into the sunset. It was like yeah. terrible decision making. Um, and uh, I wouldn't recommend that to anyone. Bottom line is there's never a right time. Um, yeah. You want to do something, you have to do it. So the key takeaway here is don't start a business. Let's let's just finish this discussion. <laughs> well, that's, not, a, that's, that's not true. So, um, so I think it depends what matters to you, right? Like, yeah. Like we're in definitely um, 
Like I would have had a lot more if I didn't start the business to now. I think the business is hopefully worth something that that will pay off. But but ultimately, like starting a business is not a good decision from an income perspective. It's a good decision from a capital perspective if it works. Um, and so it depends on what your priorities. Like if you need cash to support a family and pay a mortgage, then starting a business can be a very hard decision because um, it's not easy to make all those things happen at once. Um, but for me, I think I was lucky that we were in a position to do it. Um, my wife still um, had a job and was supporting us, and we had saved some through the, the previous period. Um, and so I think we were able to, and yeah. we got through it. Um, but it's not an easy financial decision for a lot of people. You know that, Zach. <laughs> yeah, no, but this podcast is about me. It's, um, I'm, I'm here to share your story. So um, uh, <laughs> thanks for sharing that. No, look, um, it's interesting. Uh, so this is the fourth episode that we've done now from for the From Little Things podcast. Um, but there's a common theme, and that is that entrepreneurship is not necessarily, the, the first driver is not financial. Um, and it's generally purpose, a sense of uh, self-awareness. Uh, learning who you are, what drives you, and then finding a problem that you want to solve. Um, um, can I just jump in on that? Like, I couldn't yeah. agree more. Um, this, the founders who are chasing money always, and they quit really early, and they usually. <laughs> um, yeah. If your if your driver is money, like you're not going to do very well. Um, like they they just don't. I think the people who have grit, have determination, push through hard things, um, and make continue making decisions that further the business, even if it would be a better decision for you financially to go quit and get another job. They're the ones that succeed. Um, yeah. And so for me, you can probably hear my, my main driver is having an impact um, and, and knowing that something I built had a positive impact on the world around me. And I believe cash will impact millions of people and help millions of people invest their money and, and grow their wealth over time. So I think yeah. my business is the perfect place for me to do that. Um, but I think that's the same for a lot of successful founders. Um, you know. Yeah, I certainly echo that. I think when when if you focus on the financial part up front, when things go wrong, which inevitably they do, and we're going to touch on these these things shortly, um, then it becomes really hard to keep going because you need you need something else. Because the second, as you said, it's, it, you you make more money working. Um, well, you make more reliable money. Yeah, ex- exactly. In the short term, correct. So, um, or, or you just flip it as soon as you get an option, right? Like, you know, some people flip businesses. You start one, two years later, they sell it off. They make a couple of million dollars or a million dollars. That's a that can be a successful exit for someone who's chasing money. Yeah. Uh, but if you flip something in twelve or eighteen months, like you're probably not going to have an impact. Like the thing you started, someone else will take it, and they may or may not do something with it. Yeah. Sell it. Yeah. Yeah. Drive. Uh, I think there's something to be said about founder-driven uh, and purpose-driven businesses and their ability to drive impact. And um, like for what it's worth, I think you're already realizing your 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 goal, right? Uh, so you said millions. I'm pretty sure there probably are millions of people investing through your infrastructure. Um, but um, it, it wasn't always that way. So you you were walking us through the journey before. You, you, so how many years has it been since you started Cash? I think we're four. We're four now. I think our oldest product is is three and a bit. So I think the business is born. Um, yeah, it's, it's been a bit of a wild ride. Like in that four-year period, we started just before COVID. Yeah. Um, COVID was insane. Um, and then suddenly it's been gyrating ever since and economic conditions volatile every six months are radically different from the previous six months. Yeah. It's, it's just the, the best and worst time to ever start an investment business. <laughs> so yeah, because volatility is great for investment returns if you're a professional investor and you know how to deal with them, but not so great when you're dealing on when you're relying on investors to invest in your business and grow your business and, and try to navigate that. But when you started, we met uh, at the very start. I remember meeting you at Stone and Chalk, which is a co-working space for those who don't know it in, in Sydney. Um, I was just getting started as well, and I think you had a team of three people, uh, and you were just going through a pivot. Um, so you spoke about before you, you're looking for a BSP account number will let give you exposure yeah. to, to invest. What happened with that initial concept and how long did it take before you just you un, you needed to pivot and what, what was that catalyst to pivot? Yeah, so it took us about a year to get our initial B2C product off, off the ground or just under yeah. a year. Um, and then when we got it up, obviously, it's a B2C business, right? So there's operating costs and you have to get customers and there's customer acquisition costs and you've got a marketing activity. Yeah. Um, but we had both the front end and the back end of the business um, in-house. And so 
obviously we need to go raise money. So we went out to raise money um, and we'd already raised a bit, but we needed growth money and, and we just entered market. So it's like, this is the time to, to demonstrate that product is attractive and you can grow. Um, and then I think, um, and then COVID came to town, March 2020. Um, that was just a massive sledge of hammer to our business. Um, I don't know if your customers remember, but there was a two-week period when the ASX fell 30%. Um, and uh, there was shutdowns of cafes and clubs, but that was before JobKeeper came out. So there was this, these photos of people queuing up around the corner from Centrelink because you'd go to work, get sacked, go straight to Centrelink. And, and the I whole... Do remember, I do remember yeah. that, yeah. So the fear on the streets was just just insane. And it, and it flipped, like, literally within a week or two. It went from everyone's excited to everyone's panicking. We're going into a recession. Um, and a recession, the likes of which we haven't seen for 70 years. Um, and obviously, it didn't take long before JobKit came out and then other measures suddenly people realised we weren't going into, you know, catastrophic recession. We just need to work from home and other things would happen. Um, but there was a period there when no one was investing in our products. Um, shareholders were saying, look, there's no investment in your business because, like, we're going into a recession. That's, you know, you don't invest in FinTech, you know, as you're going off the cliff. Um, and so very quickly it became, you know, crisis sections. We're saying, look, how long is this going to last? Like, we can't you know, run an investing business with no customers, with no growth forever. Um, what do we do? And um, around the same time, I was chatting with some founders of other startups. Um, and one of them said to me, oh, Caleb, your thing will be cooked. You're an investment business. Um, why don't you quit and build a product for us and we can launch it in a year's time or whatever um, after this is all done and you can work for me. And I was like, oh, no, I don't think I want to do that. I kind of want to build my own thing and, um, and then I had another friend who I was advising about how to build investment products. And I called him up and I was like, how's your thing going? And he goes, oh, terrible. Um, no one will support us. Like trustees won't touch us, registries won't touch us. Everybody's risk profile is just closed because of COVID. I can't, I can't launch. And so very quickly the solution became obvious. I was like, I won't work for you guys, but like, can I deliver your product? Can I launch your product in an API and you can run with your thing? And I think I called them both up and said, um, oh, how much would it cost? And we came up with a number. And I was like, all right, but I have, I have no funding, so you have to pay, like, a massive amount of that up front. And they were both like, all right. So within about two weeks, I think we had a half-million-dollar turnaround. We had, like, two contracts signed. Um, we had cash at the bank. I then got a couple of investors who agreed to come in off the back of those deals. And then I called the rest of the investors. Um, and the conversation was like, hi, yeah. So the old thing's gone. New things on. We're investing as a service. Oh, yeah, the card product, that's not. Nobody wants that. And the future is running investment products for other companies. And we've yeah. already got two customers and, and we don't need any more money for the next, you know, nine months to raise, you know, then. Um, and that was the pivot, right? So on the one hand, I don't think we had much of a choice. Like uh, the market was forcing us to go from B to C to B to B. Um, but on the other hand, I should say that um, it was the best choice we ever made. Yeah. Instead of yeah. products, which is restricted by our marketing budget and our brand. We now support a whole raft of products and they're all supported by their own marketing budgets and distribution strategies. And we get to diversify our risk across across all of them. So it was a fantastic decision. You're almost um, like an ETF for fintechs, aren't you? I've said this story before and, and people kind of say, well, you weren't, you know, it wasn't your decision to pivot. But I should say our very first deck when we raised money before anything, it had this slide way at the back, which was like, after we've made it big as a B2C, we'll then platform and, and do white label products. So that one slide at the back of the deck, before we had a product or anything, ended up being the whole business. Um, now, just, a, just a touch on that. Like, why, why do you think when you started that you didn't just go, if, if you had that idea that one day you would go there, why didn't you go there to start with? Like, what was it about serving consumers directly that you started with? Were you, were you a smart guy? You would have done the maths. And, yeah. Like, what was... What was it? Well, the theory was that no one would trust us if we haven't done it before. So, like, if you walk up to a company and go, hi, I'm going to build you a digital investment product and it's going to be amazing and it's going to look like this, they'll say, great, who are your other customers? And we'll be like, oh, we don't have any. We're just going to build it for you. Um, so there's definitely a trust element. Like, the B2B sales with no product is very, very hard. You typically need a proof of concept. Um, and we always thought we didn't only need technical proof of concept, but 
proof of market fit and market demand. And so the, the plan was to build up a, a large and successful B2C business before pivoting to B2B. And in the end, we, we demonstrated technical proof, but we, we never really demonstrated proof in market. We never got to scale. And yeah. so um, market conditions then changed and effectively accelerated that transition. Um, it enabled us to go faster to B2B because these partners, like I said, one of them was trying to build it themselves and they probably would have um, if the market was strong. Um, the fact that the market was difficult not only forced us to pivot, but it kind of forced them to, to come with us. But it so that's a really interesting point you make because I think there are there would be people listening right now. It was one, of, one of the things we like to highlight in these discussions is yes, we're talking about the specifics of your business, but if we abstract away some of the concepts here, so I'm just going to reflect a little bit on what we discussed. So you've shared your, your journey from little things. You've gone from uh, a journey of independence in your early years. Um, you've got a really good qualification, really good uh, corporate experience. You've realized, though, that you want to have greater impact. And impact means lots of different things to lots of different people, but it always seems to come out of a, a restriction of autonomy or be able to execute on the activities they really want to execute on because of the environment they're in. You start a business based on an understanding. You, you had an understanding of an area. You've started that business. Through that journey, you weren't purely motivated by money because if you were at that point, you probably would have quit at that pivot point. Yeah. <laughs> You've realized that there's an opportunity. One question I do have is, do you think the work you did for the first iteration unlocked the opportunity to build the infrastructure piece? So do you think those people from the other fintechs that ended up effectively prepaying or pre-committing to use your service, therefore building the business case to build the business, Mm. You think you would have got that without doing the first part? No, no. Like you've got nothing. Really. If you're selling B two B, you need you need to sell something you've got. It's very hard to sell a product you haven't built yet. Um, I mean, you can do it in certain circumstances, but but it's hard. But it sounds really like you hard. kind of had to build. You you kind of built your entrepreneurial street cred as well through going through that first iteration. Yeah, well, we a better term. <laughs> well, we got we we got a license and we proved that we could build an investment product that works. Um, so. You know, if we're an infrastructure player, we built we built the infrastructure, or at least an MVP of the infrastructure. Um, and I'd say it's a lot more common than people realise. I think um, I know there's a lot of successful businesses, that's product businesses that started as like consulting businesses or or other that you know they branch out of services business. Yeah. And that's I think because if you're providing a service, like let's say you're a, an app developer or you're a you know services company or a consultant, and then you come up with this idea that oh I could provide this as a service. And then you enter into a new business model. And I think I've seen a lot of examples of that. I think a great example would be like uh, uh, the UpBank team. You know, so the UpBank idea didn't come out of nowhere. There was a group of developers who had built banking apps for banks as a service provider. And then they went out and built UpBank. Now, could they do that if they had no experience building banking apps? Be hard. Um, another one would be Avoca down in Manly. Um, they were consultants to banks, um, mostly in America providing services around development of different features. And then they productized and they built a, um, a white label um, solution that they then sold as a product in the States and did very, very well. Um, they couldn't have done that, that successful business that grew um, if they hadn't you know, already developed the skills and expertise in that consulting role. Yeah. So I think um, there's definitely an argument to say that you basically need a ticket to play. You need to provide a service to someone, get experience, learn about a, a space, in order to then, you know, do that next that next business, that next offering, because um, it's very hard to go straight to a high trust regulated large product without having done anything before that. And, and it sounds like um, some of your first opportunities to go down the infrastructure business model or the, or the B two B business model was actually through networks, um, and it wasn't necessarily the large enterprise which you are serving now. You mentioned. Uh, but you started small. Well, they were large fintechs themselves. But um, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, what's a key, what's a key takeaway? I guess again, I'm sitting here right now as a business owner listening to this podcast. I'm really enjoying the conversation so far, of course. Um, but you know, I'm I'm sitting at the end of hopefully a bear market. So you know, there's been a bit of a downturn in the last twelve months. Business is tough. The economic conditions are tough. I'm going to Christmas. I'm, I'm listening on my Christmas break. I'm, I'm exhausted from running my business and I'm probably still running it over the holidays, uh, which you and I undoubtedly will be. Um, what's it, what, where do I find the motivation to keep going? Where do, I, where do I look for the next opportunity? Oh, I don't know about that. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know what the takeaway is. 
I think like I've learned a lot through the whole process. Um, I learned about the importance of grit, of determination, of learning. Like people are going to tell you that things are going to fail all the time. The market tells you you're going to fail all the time. Um, we've had periods where you know everything was going to die, and then you know in terms of the market, and then we had periods where everything was exciting. And then we had periods where like crypto was exciting. And yeah, how many people were telling you to start doing crypto trading during that time? I'm sure you would have had people, Caleb. You should have a crypto app doing something. We've had, uh, had everything. We've had. Yeah. Everything. Did you have NFTs at one stage? And and like, are you doing something AI now as well? Oh yeah, AI. That's the latest. Yeah, um, <laughs> had everything. Right. We've had like absolutely everything. So yeah, um, you know, those tech stocks were really cool. So our yeah. products. That give you exposure the tech stocks were really exciting and then there was a period where crypto was cool and everybody told us to do crypto and our customers were saying we want crypto investment options and we started doing some work in that space but it was limited um but of course very quickly the crypto market turns and it all dies and suddenly it becomes super unpopular and then in australia there were several crypto products that have like exploded for regulatory reasons which kind of kind of dampened the the, the appetite the crypto demand yeah 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 um so there was some ETFs that blew up and stuff. Um, yeah. And then um, and then after that, suddenly there was this period where yield products are exciting. And all throughout this year, interest rates are rising. So yield products are very exciting and we've got some high interest yield products that have done very well this year. And the question goes, what's going to happen next year? Um, and my answer is I have no idea. Um, I think I could predict the market three and six months ahead. And now I'm like, Stuff, like, uh, I, don't, I don't believe anyone can pick the market. I think there's a, uh, there's a study done uh, in the US, I can't remember who did the study, but it was a, it was a um, comparison between uh, chimps making investment decisions and active managers. Yeah. And uh, in the end, uh, the chimps uh, outperformed the active manager. Uh, but the, the purpose of the study was that no one can time or pick the market. Of course, there are, there are um, you know, strategies that work. <laughs> I think I had some kind of insight. Like I used to think, oh, see, maybe not no nine months, but maybe at least a quarter in advance, you know, yeah. to like feel the vibe. But I think my lesson so far is that like market forces are so volatile um, and it might not change the way you expect, like something else might just come out of the blue and, and be different. Um, and so for our business, we just need to be diversified, flexible, responsive. Yeah. When the market changes, we need to change to make sure that we continue serving our clients and prospective clients in a way that, that helps them. Yeah. Um, and not get caught on a strategy that becomes inappropriate for the market, you know, at, at the given time. What, what I'm right in saying is kind of um, it's about focus, so staying true to your to your north star or your purpose or whatever it is that you're delivering on, and not getting distracted. Because as you said, these things come up all the time. How do you um, how do you push back? Like, what what are some of the the mechanisms you employ yourself to push back on investors, on team, uh, on the various stakeholders that we need to manage? to stay the course and not get pulled in all these different directions? Um, I think we have a pretty clear strategy around what we do, the problem we're solving and how we do it. Yeah. And then everything outside of that, it becomes easy to consider. So like, like we're on a mission to help more people invest. And the way we do that is we support digital investment products that are good for our customers' needs or suitable for our customers. And so that's the strategy. Um, ultimately, if somebody comes to us and says, I want to offer an investment to our customers, We'll say, amazing. Let's see if we can deliver that for you. What's the uniqueness? What is who is your customer? How do we help you do that? Um, and then we try and deliver that for them. Now, if they're asking for something that we haven't done before, or that's onerous for us, um, if there's new features, new payment rails, new asset classes, or whatever, we'll look at it and we'll go, look, do we believe this investment is worth it for our business? Do we believe it's replicable? Like if we do it for you, will it help us support other clients in the future? Um, is there anything strategic about it? If the answer is no, 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 there's this bizarre requirement that one client thinks will be amazing that we think is a bit odd, um, then we might turn around to the client and say, look, that's not what we do, but we don't want to stop you from, you know, chasing your dreams. Let's see if we can come up with a commercial arrangement that works. So we often do, you know, some, we would call it non-recurring strategic work or project work, um, which allows our clients to, to experiment their own theories. Um, but not at our risk um, and not at our financial risk. So that's kind of the, the tool we use for customers. Um, on the other hand, we've got our own roadmap of, of projects and activities that uh, are driving what we think um, our stack should do and how we can help better support our clients and their account holders. Yep. So that's kind of our primary roadmap. Um, and then everything else, when somebody comes up with something like crypto or AI or whatever, we'll be like, 
how does this fit? Is it resaleable? Is it scalable? Is it bespoke? Is there risk from a regulatory perspective? How do we how do we handle that? Um, and it either may or may not fit its way into our roadmap, depending on the answer to those questions. Yeah, that's really cool. Thanks for sharing. And I think um, again, like, it's just really helpful to hear how how you navigate the complexities. Um, I'm conscious of time, but I've got like, two more areas that I'd love to explore. Um, one is, uh, well, we'll start from the first one. The first one is you mentioned that you you do run a startup. You've raised money successfully, which is awesome. So congratulations on that. Um, but you work in financial services and in and exposed to the investment markets, which have been volatile over the last 24 months. Um, how how have you dealt with needing to shift your mindset as a, as a leader from a focus on growth um, mm. to a focus on a little bit of, a little less growth, a little bit more, um, shall we say, more responsible growth. Uh, and that's an industry-wide view, not your business specifically. Um, and profit and profitability. Uh, how's that changed the way you you run your business? Oh, I think the answer is it's, it's, it's huge. And I think the market has changed so radically in this regard. Um, it's kind of funny. And I'll, I'll, I'll use this as an anecdote. Um, in 2021, we raised uh, a round um, and in that round, we had a deck, and that I think had 30 slides in, and it went through all the elements of our business. Um, and, and several of them were about business model and revenue growth, and there was different um, projections or strategies around what we would achieve. Um, but nowhere in those 30 pages did it mention the word cost, expenses, profit. Just yeah. didn't, didn't appear. Um, and in hindsight, that feels ridiculous. I couldn't but, and, and just to pause, it's not because you don't know how to do it. You do know how to do it. It's actually the investment expectations at the time were that you didn't need to. I was going to say, we did a full round, a full yeah. round, and yeah. nobody asked us for it, right? Yeah. I think we had a, a data room, and so there was information about expenses, but it didn't need to go into the deck because when investors were reviewing a business at that stage, um, which is very early, they didn't care. They were like, if you could grow, if you can get the revenue, serve the customer, you know, the expenses will work themselves out. You'll make the earnings in the end. Um, that was the mindset of the investor at the time. Um, but now if we went out of the deck, the idea that you wouldn't include information on, um, you know, uh, your margins, your expenses, your profitability, um, like that's all critical because at the end of the day, you're getting your value based on your earnings potential, like revenue potential. Um, but the mindset has just radically, radically changed um, in the last two years. Um, and I should say that, that change in mindset then funnels down through every business. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. The old strategy was basically hit the growth target um, and um, and then we'll raise again if we need to. Like the the risk of uh, not breaking even was dilution. Um, yeah. Manageable if you grow, right? Um, but then when the market shifts to go, actually, we care about earnings. We don't care about um, revenue. Or we care about revenue, but we, we care about profit. Revenues. Yeah. Um, then suddenly it goes, oh, the risk of, of, of not breaking even is is business failure because you might not raise the next round. You know, there may not be an investor there to fund it again if you haven't uh, made progress on this. And, and, and yeah, sorry. Yeah. I was going to say, and that means that everybody's in, um, uh, capital strategy changes. Uh, it means that the strategy goes from burning a fixed amount every year and raising as you need to I want to break even before the next round every time. Um, pretty much every day I've seen in the last 12 months says we're going to break even before the next round. Um, yeah. And ours is the same. And, um, and, and I appreciate sharing that because I, I think when you start a business, um, you start on a set of assumptions. And, and as you said, you've shared throughout this discussion that you do need to be open to pivoting. But some of these assumptions are pretty fundamental um, to the, the lifetime of the business. Uh, and, and you are a business that serves other businesses that also raise money to operate as well, um, which would all be going through the same cascading effect across the market. And, and this doesn't just apply to your business and your industry or our industry. It applies to um, you know the tradesperson who's on the construction site and all of a sudden the cost of materials have gone up and the project's no longer profitable or people are cancelling projects. Um, how does that play into day-to-day though? So like just if we can get like even just one example of what's changed this year and the way you run that business um, oh. versus maybe oh. a year ago when capital is a little bit more available. Oh, the big thing is capital strategy and costs, right? Yeah. So I think this year we've grown, you know, our revenue I think is up about 85%, but our headcount has grown by like 10%. So 
you know, that would have been very different two years ago. We would have gone, oh, if we're going to grow 85% of headcount, it'll probably go something similar um, because we'll be pushing into more growth. And every time we um, increase our revenue, we'll be like, that's an opportunity to spend that revenue and, and make more growth. Um, whereas now it's like, no, um, we need to grow. Uh, and when we grow, we can't just consume that in cost. We need the earnings to grow. So every yeah. time we add revenue, we need most of that to hit the bottom line, um, which means you know you need to grow revenue without growing costs. And so um, the, the strategy is radically different. Our, our team is far more lean now than it was a year ago and a year before that. Um, and as we're growing, the additional cost of supporting extra dollar in revenue is improving, um, which I think is is natural for a business. Yeah. But if you thought you would do that in five years after you launch, and then you suddenly have to do that two or three years after you launch, you, te- you have to take a different strategy, right? Is that just a, and is that just around trying to do more with less, or is it around deploying people differently? Or you know, because it, um, a lot of businesses probably feel like they're at capacity. Do you find there's always like like did you do a review of what everyone was working on? How did you how did you figure out? Well, the bottom line is you do need to do more with less. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you can't. And that's a simple growing. takeaway. Yeah, yeah. You can't stop growing. You can't cut so hard that you don't grow. Um, you got to try and grow as fast as you can without adding adding cost to your business. Yeah. Um, and I think that's just the maths you have to do. Okay. So if you're asking how do you do that, that's it's a deeper conversation. A million dollar question. <laughs> maybe <laughs> multiple maybe multiple millions. Um, how do you grow revenue without growing costs? Well, um, in our a- AI. <laughs> we're a platform. Yeah. Um, it costs us time and money and effort to launch new products, to onboard new clients. But once they're up and running, that's when they become lower touch to support. So what we need to do is just keep adding more clients. Um, and as they grow their account holders, we go with them. And so for us, our margins improve as, as we go. So there was an, always an element of once we get to a certain scale, you know, we can grow more profitably. Yeah. Um, and we kind of have a fixed cost in our business that is hard to remove. So I think the timing of our business has, has been lucky in the sense that we've been able to raise money at times we really needed to. And then at times when the market says, you know, we care about earnings, we've been able to to prioritise that. Um, but there would be an alternative universe when the market conditions wouldn't have lined up as well, which would have been a lot a lot harder. And I, again, I really appreciate you sharing some of these concepts because um, I think uh, a lot of the times we hear about um, like founder resilience, founder grit, um, and we hear about timing as well. You know, these things need to align to an extent. But I think I think there's, it's important to give you credit where credit is due. I mean, it would have been extremely difficult to navigate. You've done extremely well. Um, conscious of where we are in our discussion and time, um, great segue into the final question I have for you. Looking back at your journey from Little Things, Kelly, um, what would be the three biggest takeaways that you'd want to leave our audience with today? In terms of learnings that they could apply to their journey, I don't know the answer to the question, Daniel. <laughs> I'm sure I, if you dig deep enough, you'll find it. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I think I, I'm not going to give advice to all these unknown people who I've never met before and apply it to their lives. Um, but I'd say that the lessons I've learned for me, um, I definitely like do the things that I think are, have the most impact. Um, you know, you got to set your own course. At the end of the day, a startup is, is driven by the founder or the CEO um, and everybody else in that company is supporting that management um, structure. Um, you know, the shareholders are contributing capital. The staff members are contributing their time. Your customers are contributing their, their capital as well and they're consuming the service. Um, but fundamentally, that, that management team or that CEO or exec team are the driving force behind the business um, and they need to make the decisions to you know, build the business in, in a way that, that succeeds. So kind of keeping a focus on on your critical role in in designing and driving the success of your business because I, I think the, the cavalry is not dummy, it, it, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> You're the one that's going to take, you know, cop the, the cost of it and the responsibility for it. You also have to take the ownership to make those calls. Like, yeah. like that's my key takeaway. Okay. No, super powerful. Thank you. I won't push you for another two. I think you've been pretty good. You've shared, <laughs> you've shared enough along the journey, but maybe I'll take that opportunity to ask one more question. Uh, so you you see the markets play out in real time through your platform. You can see people investing. Mm. You can see the the peaks and troughs of that activity. Um, what's your gut feel? Not advice, personal opinion. 
um, of where the world's going in 2024, particularly in Australia? Oh, it's really hard to tell. And I think the answer to this question will change every six weeks. And so by the time people listen to this, it might be out of date. Um, but I'd say the markets have behaved in a fascinating way over the last 12, 18 months. You know, interest rates have risen significantly all over the world. Um, in Australia, they've risen slower than in other markets. And that's had a whole range of impacts. Um, equity trading volumes have collapsed. Um, Micro-investing products, which are recurring investments, held up. Um, income funds are very popular, chasing the yield. Um, the Australian dollar falls because it's less attractive to invest in Australia as it is in other countries which have higher interest rates. Um, so that's what's driven us to here. The question is what happens next. Um, it looks at the moment like interest rates will come down again next year, not as fast as they rose, but soften. And it also looks like Australia will be slower than the rest of the world. So we were slower on the way up, slower on the way down whether that means part of that or part of what we saw this year will unwind probably um the pace and how that works i have no idea um i'm kind of hoping that next year is a more bullish year than this one um i think we've got green shoots particularly in offshore markets which hopefully will translate into our market um but it's hard to tell um the only thing i'd say is australia appears to be behind the curve um in terms of timing so it yep. feels like we can take our lead from other markets. If something happens there, maybe three months later we'll see something similar um, here. That's how I'm feeling at the moment. So I think that's my gut feel. Um, I don't know if that's helpful or not. <laughs> no, it's, it is. So again, thanks a lot for sharing. Um, Kel, really appreciate you taking the time, particularly in the rush up to Christmas. I know you've got a lot going on. Uh, congrats again on the journey. Uh, congrats on the FinTech Leader of the Year as well. Huge accolade. And um, looking forward to see where you and cash go next uh where can people find you if they want to develop a investing app or, and run it on your platform or just get to know you better yeah we'll head off to our website cashinvest.com.au have a, a link there you can call us or write us a message um otherwise check out all of our clients products um and you can do that by just basically finding any investing app um downloading it and checking it out It'll probably be all over the videos Awesome. Thanks so much for joining today. Have a Merry Christmas and uh, all the best for the year. All good. Thanks, Dad. Thanks, Caleb. From Little Things is brought to you by Papera, the all-in-one solution that makes business easy for Aussie sole traders, company directors, and small business owners. You can learn more and get started for free at papera.com. From Little Things is part of the Sonic Boom network of podcasts. To get your brand started on its own podcast, visit sonicboom.vc.